Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our series in the book of Deuteronomy, and here the guys will be in Deuteronomy chapter 8. We want to invite you to come celebrate 10 years of our work with us this summer. You can do that by coming to the Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which will be on July 17th and 18th. The theme for the conference this year is love, as we look at the theological virtues. And there will be lectures from Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, Dr. James Wood, and many others. We also hope that you'll stick around for our Trinity Feast on the evening of July 18th. This will be our big 10-year anniversary party. We will feast into the evening, and we will also enjoy a short talk from Kelly Capick. Kelly Capick is Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College, where he has been since 2001. If you have not already, we also encourage you to download the Theopolis app and sign up. You can sign up for an account at app.theopolisinstitute.com, and there you can enjoy tons of lectures, entire remastered Biblical Horizons conferences, a growing library of ebooks, the audiobook of Theopolitan Vision by Peter Lightheart, commentary on nearly every chapter of the Bible by Dr. Alistair Roberts, and much, much more. So to sign up, I've provided a link down there in the show notes for you. And after you create an account, you can then download the app and begin to enjoy all that it has to offer. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John discussing Deuteronomy chapter 8. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alistair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who is a regular on the podcast, is not able to be with us today. Uh, we look forward to his return in a couple of weeks. Uh, we're grateful for Brian Motes, who is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out and getting it all ready for, for public release. Uh, we're in the beginning stages of a study of Deuteronomy. I, I soon have to have to uh, stop saying that. We are uh, in going to be working on Chapter 8 today, which is making our way through. We're, we're not uh, quite a... a a quarter of the way through, we're about a quarter of the way through, but not quite. So uh, we're, we've been going through Deuteronomy. We're currently in the section of Deuteronomy that deals with the first word. Deuteronomy 5 repeats the 10 words that are recorded initially in Exodus 20, the words that the Lord spoke from Sinai. And those are repeated with some modifications in Deuteronomy 5. And then after Deuteronomy 5, from Deuteronomy 6 to uh, roughly Deuteronomy 27 or so, the chapters of Deuteronomy are laid out in the sequence of the 10 words. So different sections of Deuteronomy are elaborating on each of the 10 words. And the chapters 6 through 11 are the ones that are dealing with the first word. And we've been going through a couple of chapters of that treatment of the first word. And we're getting to chapter 8 in this episode and chapter 9 in the next episode, which is also part of the first word section. As Moses elaborates on this first word, we begin to see how broad its applications. It's, it is uh, explicitly a prohibition of any other gods before the face of Yahweh that is most explicitly and deliberately violated when people put idols right before the face of God. Solomon puts an idolatrous shrine on the mountain that's east of Jerusalem, that's the Mount of Olives, and uh, that's right before the face of Yahweh. Yahweh is, as it were, looking out from his throne inside the temple and looking out to the toward the east. And he there's an idol right before his face. That's a direct violation of the first word. 
Manasseh does the same. He puts an idol in the temple itself uh, and uh, violates the first word. But as Moses elaborates it, we realize that uh, the first word involves lots of other dimensions. It's not just a matter of avoidance of idols or avoidance of worshiping other gods, but uh, it's uh, it's the motivation for the conquest. Because Israel worships Yahweh alone, when they enter the land, which is Yahweh's land, then they have to be intolerant of all the idols, and they have to destroy all the idols. We looked at that in the last chapter, in chapter 7. In chapter 8, we're going to see that the first word involves an acknowledgement of dependence on Yahweh for Israel's life in the wilderness, for Israel's life in the land. Everything that Israel has uh, is dependent on Yahweh's gift, and acknowledging that dependence is part of the first word. Humility is part of the first word. If you're actually keeping the first word, then you're acknowledging that God is giving you all that you have, and you have uh, the first word is an exhortation against pride. This section of Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy as a whole spends a lot of time talking about memory and forgetfulness. Moses tells the people to remember what happened to them in the wilderness, remember what happened in Egypt, remember what the Lord has done in the past. Uh, And in the context of the first word, that's part of honoring God as God, is to remember what he's done in the past. And forgetfulness then becomes a violation of the first word. If we forget what God has done, then we're effectively worshiping another God. The first word encompasses, really encompasses all of the 10 words. All of the 10 words have to do with honoring God as God. Uh, we should, uh, as chapter 8 says, we'll, we'll look at this in just a few minutes. As chapter 8 says, we live by everything that flows out of the mouth of God. Uh, and so, if we acknowledge God as God and live by what flows out of his mouth, then uh, that, that means keeping the first word means listening to all of his words, not just that particular one. So there's many facets to the to the first word as as Moses teaches on it. Uh, one other thing I'll say by way of introduction, actually two other things I'll say by way of introduction. One is it seems like the first word section is roughly moving backward through Israel's history. They're camped in the plains of Moab uh, when Moses delivers the sermons that are part of, that are that constitute Deuteronomy. They're about to enter the land, so that's where we begin, and that's where chapter seven is focused. It's talking about going into the land and conquering the land, dispossessing the people, demolishing the idols, purging the land of idolatry. Chapter 8, although it mentions entry into the land, focuses a lot of attention on what the Lord did for Israel in the wilderness. So, we're moving back from the edge of the land back into the wilderness and remembering the lessons of the wilderness. In chapter 9, a large chunk of chapter 9 is recounting the sin of the golden calf, which took place at Mount Sinai. So we've moved back from the edge of the land through the wilderness back to Mount Sinai. Uh, And then uh, beginning of chapter 11, we have uh, the only reference in the book of Deuteronomy to Israel's passage through the sea. There are a lot of references in Deuteronomy to the Exodus. The Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. But Deuteronomy 11 is the only place that talks about the passage through the sea and the the destruction of Pharaoh's army and that particular event that is the the, the moment of uh, exit out of Egypt. So from chapters seven through seven through eleven, we've kind of moved in reverse order through Israel's history, and that's all framed by uh, the exhortation to love God with our whole heart and soul and strength in chapter six, and that's repeated in chapter eleven. The latter part of chapter eleven repeats a lot of what's in chapter six. So you're, the whole section is framed by by the command to love God above all things. And then in the midst of that, you're roughly moving, Moses is roughly moving in reverse order, taking Israel back to their previous experiences in the wilderness, their previous experience at Sinai, their previous experience in the redemption from from Egypt. 
Now, the last thing I'll say is a, just a, a word about the, the ordering of chapter eight. As I said, it's there's a focus on the wilderness, but there's also references to the land, and you have kind of a, a chiastic scheme. Uh, there's a, an exhortation to remember the wilderness in verse two, and then some lessons that they're supposed to draw from the wilderness. Keeping those lessons in mind, uh, they're to go into the land and inherit the good land that the Lord gives in verse seven, and then it has several verses of description of the abundance of the land that the Lord is giving. Uh, then verse 11 seems to be the center of this structure. Beware lest you forget Yahweh your God by not keeping his commandments, his ordinances, his statutes, which I'm commanding you. And then you're back to talking about the land uh, and the abundance of the land and the things that Israel will produce from the land. And then you go back into the wilderness, a reminder of what happened in the wilderness. The first section begins with, you shall remember in verse 2, the next section begins, beware lest you forget in verse 11, and you have uh, a wilderness land, land wilderness is the ordering of the locations that are in view. So uh, the chapter hangs together uh, structurally as, an, as a fairly simple chiasm. There are other, the other structures going on, but that's a, that's a simple way to see the, uh, the ordering of chapter 8. One of the things that comes out in uh, Deuteronomy 8.2 is the the fact that uh, you, uh, something we we brought up before that the fact that Israel is functioning as an Adamic kind of people, when they go into the land, they're going to live and multiply. That's in verse one. They go into possess the land and they're going to live in the land and they're going to multiply in the land. That's fulfilling the original dominion mandate that was given to Adam and Eve, Genesis one, to multiply in the land. That that language of multiplication comes up later in the chapter. Also, also the fact that Israel is put under a test. Uh, that's that's the intention of the wilderness, according to Deuteronomy 8. The Lord made them hunger in the wilderness. He gave them this unknown food substance, manna. Uh, he made them thirst in the wilderness and provided water. So uh, as they go through the wilderness, they're going through a food test, as Adam did in the garden. Israel doesn't pass the food test either, at least the first Israel doesn't. So the first Israel dies in the wilderness, and a second Israel comes and that Israel is going to be the Israel that goes into the land and fulfills the Adamic mandate. So the language that's used here is recalling the situation in Eden and is uh, once again returning to the idea that uh, Israel is an Adamic people, uh, not just a, uh, a separated people chosen out from among the nations, but a separated people chosen out from among, among the nations to be uh, the, the, the site where the Lord initially fulfills the destiny of humanity. Uh, Israel is the true human race that is later, of course, going to expand in the New Covenant to encompass Gentiles on an equal footing with Israel. But Israel already has that role as being the, of being the new human race, the new Adamic race uh, in the Old Covenant. When we're reading the story of the wilderness, it's very easy just to see it as divine punishment or um, this period of time that is necessary in order to pass through a particular realm into a new realm. But yet, Within Deuteronomy and elsewhere, I think we get a clear sense that it is uh, part of the training of Israel, and they flunk the test the first time, and so they can't graduate to the land. And so the teaching that Moses is giving at this juncture is preparing them for, as it were, a new test. They're about to advance to the next class, as it were. And unless they've learned the lessons very clearly of the wilderness experience, they won't be able to make that graduation successfully. And so what is incredibly 
a matter of incredible concern for Moses is that the lessons of the wilderness are brought into the life of the land. And we see this in various ways in the broader teaching of the Exodus period. The Exodus is attended with all these concerns to institute the redemption event in continuing memory. We can see it in places like Exodus 12 with the institution of the Passover, where in the context of the story of the deliverance of Israel, you almost have an interruption of the flow of the narrative. As you're told, while Moses and Aaron were in Egypt, they instituted, and then it describes the whole institution of the Passover in that context, in a way that almost projects us outside of Egypt. And then looking back into Egypt, we are um, reading about the Passover. And that matters because Israel was always going to experience the Passover in its replaying. And it was the institution of something that was an ongoing practice, not so important in some ways in just its original form, but in its ongoing performance. So we might think about the Last Supper in a similar way. The action that Christ performs at the Last Supper is important for the disciples who were there, but its importance is probably far greater in its continuing performance in the life of the church, where it is a source of memory, a source of anticipation, and a means by which the lessons and the meaning of the events of the week of the Passion become very immediate and present to us. And we might think about the Exodus experience in a similar way. Moses is concerned that they take things forward. And so the institution of practices like the Passover, the institution of um, laws such as the law of the firstborn, the institution of the whole festal calendar, the institution of the law itself as a body of material that is very much grounded in that deliverance is all part of the way in which the Lord establishes that event as the generative reality of Israel's ongoing life, not just the initial events of its deliverance. And Moses just does not want them to forget this. You might think about the way that the event of the manna and the Lord's provision that's described here becomes a continuing feature of Israel's life as they offer the omer of the first fruit, which corresponds with the omer of the manna that they receive day by day. Although there's the practice of agriculture that means that they're accumulating, they're developing structures by which they provide for themselves, they need to remember the lesson of the manna, which is that the Lord provides day by day for their needs and their food. And even if you've got a whole agricultural system up and going, you need to prepare yourself for the difficult days when decadence is at the door. And that's what Moses is concerned to do here. Yeah, just a few glosses on that, uh, Alistair. Um, first of all, the, the, yeah, the point that Israel is going through a test and a training in the wilderness is important. And that, again, links up with the Adamic dimensions that I mentioned earlier, that uh, Adam was placed in the garden. He's put, he's put under a food rule, a food prohibition. He's made to fast so that uh, he can, it's a test so that he can advance into another stage of glory. So it, uh, Israel's going through the same kind of thing in the wilderness. Uh, and that's that's highlighted in a couple of ways in chapter 8 here in Deuteronomy. Uh, one of them is by the stress uh, that, uh, or the the, the uh, characterization in verse 5 of what the Lord is doing to Israel. Uh, you, you are to know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you as a man disciplines his son. So Yahweh is the father raising his son to maturity, disciplining him 
by putting through putting him through this liminal experience, this experience of uh, deprivation and hardship, so that he will grow up. Uh, the other the other uh, phrasing that is uh, that reinforces that comes later in the chapter, when again the uh, the Lord is uh, Moses is recounting what happened in the wilderness right at the end of verse sixteen. He humbled you and he did all these things to test you to do you good in the end. So there's a a a, a future. A good that will come from Israel's experience is, as you said, not just a matter of punishment in the wilderness, but the wilderness experience is a discipline that will lead them to produce good fruit in the end. The other thing that uh, uh, your comments reminded me of is the the fact that Deuteronomy eight characterizes the the relationship between the land and the wilderness. Although the, the, there's a surface contrast between them, because the land is a place of deprivation, no water, no food. And once you get into the land, there's this uh, amazing description of the abundance of the land. Um, uh, that there's a, a, a surface dis, dissimilarity between them, but I think there's a more importantly there's an underlying continuity between them because in both cases Israel is dependent on Yahweh. That's more obvious in the wilderness when there isn't any apparently natural way for them to get food, and the Lord produces gives them this miraculous food and drink. But the the food and drink they get in the in the land is just as miraculous. It's just as dependent on the Lord. So there's also there's also continuity in the fact that both the deprivation of the wilderness and the satisfactions of the land, both of those are forms of testing. So uh, they're different forms of testing. But Israel is still being tested by their their father when they go into the land. Uh, they're given all this abundance and they're warned not to forget and not to begin to think that they have produced this abundance on their own. Uh, there, yeah. The, the prosperity is also is also a test, along with the uh, the lack that they had in the wilderness. Peter, you mentioned the um, setting of all this, the fact that this is taking place on the plains of Moab, and um, that kind of seems significant in light of what's going on here. They're, in a sense, uh, on victory ground. I mean, it, it's been a place where they've been tested by uh, Balaam in in some ways, and. Um, Israel have been quite flaky over the last 40 years, but God is not a a son of man who changes his mind, you know, who repents. And that that's the whole um, battle with Balaam, isn't it? That um, Balaam thinks God is that kind of God um, and that as a deity, he might be persuaded to take a different course of action. And yet kind of the, the point is that God is not, um, God is, not like that and what god has blessed can't be cursed and and all that just seems very much to stand behind chapter eight and chapter nine uh more so probably god repeatedly says that he's going to do this um because he swore um and because of what he promised to abraham and and so kind of um undergirding these tests and undergirding kind of israel's flakiness it it feels like there is that solid and um, steadfast decree of God, which is going to kind of, for all the ups and downs that are spoken about here, it seems that that is what's going to um, kind of remain steadfast and make sure that ultimately this is going to work out for Israel's good and, and they are going to survive. It's it's Romans three. Let God be true, though every man a liar. The faithfulness of the unfaithfulness of Israel doesn't doesn't cancel out the Lord's faithfulness to his promise. One of the things that Israel is supposed to pick up through this testing is knowledge. 
I don't have in front of me. Uh, I know I counted how many times the verb know is is used in the chapter. It's used a lot, but particularly in verses two and three, uh, they're to remember what happened in the wilderness. He led you. He humbled you, testing to know what was on your heart. So there's a on the one hand, the testing is to expose, to make known what is already in Israel's hearts. Uh, the the hardship squeezes out the truth of what's what's in their heart. But then, particularly verse three, you have uh, the verb used three times. He humbled you and let you know, uh, let you be hungry, fed you with many which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. So uh, he's giving them this, giving them hung, he may, he's making them hunger, and then he gives them food that they don't have never seen before. There's no precedent for it in the history of Israel. No other uh, uh, the 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 fathers of Israel didn't eat bread from heaven. So uh, it's an unprecedented diet. But the whole point of that is to make them know that man does not live by bread alone. And it's interesting that the connection. I think of Drew Johnson's work on uh, biblical epistemology and. Uh, how Drew Johnson talks about knowing in the Bible doesn't simply come out of instruction. It does do that. But knowing also comes out of ritual. And he points to Genesis 15, for example, where Moses says, or Abraham says, how shall I know that you'll keep your promise? And the Lord's answer is not to uh, give him an explanation or to give him another, uh, give him some kind of uh, discourse, but to instruct him to perform a ritual that represents the promise and is reinforcing the promise. And he puts Abram through this kind of death and resurrection experience, puts him into deep sleep and then brings him out, puts him into a, a place of terror and then brings him out with promises of uh, entry into the into the land uh, for his descendants. So, But that's all designed to teach Abraham so he knows something. Uh, and that's what's happening here too. It's not a ritual, but it's an experience in the wilderness so that Israel is to uh, is to learn this lesson and they're to know it, but they they know it by being hungry and then being given this food. There's a cognitive dimension. They're supposed to draw conclusions from it, but what what uh, the lesson is taught in the experience itself. The lesson is taught in the in the historical events of Israel's wilderness wandering. And the challenge there is also the challenge of intergenerational transmission of knowledge, and this is a theme that we see throughout these chapters of Deuteronomy, the concern that these lessons are passed on to your children, the recognition that all of these lessons could be lost in a generation were it not for continuing teaching of children in the same way that the Lord has, is, has taught Israel as his son. They must teach their sons that they might learn the same sort of lesson. I think another thing that's interesting here is the way in which we see our Lord referring to this passage in the context of his temptation in the wilderness in the 40 days in um, Luke chapter 4 and elsewhere, where particularly um, in verse 3, man lives by every man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Um, in the context of Luke, it seems to me the meaning of that is given with the juxtaposition between um, the first part of the chapter and the second part, the sermon in um, in Nazareth, where you have the first half of um, the verse from Deuteronomy quoted, man does not live by bread alone, but the second half left off. And then later on, we have Christ handed the scroll. He um, opens up the scroll, 
place, he reads from the scroll, he hands the scroll back. But the emphasis upon the presence of the scroll and his taking of the scroll and then speaking words from the scroll that are words that he speaks in the first person, I think helps to unpack what the meaning of this is, that man lives as that word is taken into him as sort a sort of food. Christ takes the word in the same way as, and I think there is a, an allusion back to Ezekiel in the context, as the way that Ezekiel takes the scroll of prophecy in the first few chapters after his vision. Christ takes that word into him and lives by that word, the word of mission. And Israel has to do the same thing. Israel has been given words by which they must live, the word of the law, the word by which they're going to pass on these lessons from generation to generation, the words by which they'll find confidence to act in a situation where um, they'll face new challenges that they've not experienced before. And all of these lessons have been taught to them experientially within the wilderness. And now the challenge is to communicate in words and in ongoing practice the fundamental truth that Israel's life arises not just from food, not just from physical power and prosperity. Its life ultimately arises from the permission of the Lord, from the empowering word of the Lord, which is not just a word of command, but a word that gives authorization and vocation and a sense of their identity. They have been addressed as the sons and daughters of the Lord and sent into the land accordingly. Yeah, in the in the Hebrew, the that phrasing is uh, is even broader. Uh, it it certainly includes what you've just described: uh, receiving the word of God, what comes from the mouth of God. Later in Deuteronomy, Moses is going to talk about the the word of the Lord being in the mouth of Israel. So the word speaks, and Israel takes it into its mouth as a kind of food, as you described. But in uh, Deuteronomy eight three, the the phrasing is broader, and it's led to a good bit of commentary about what exactly is being uh, being referred to because then it doesn't it doesn't simply say every word that comes from the mouth of God, but it's just all things that flow from the mouth of God. It's just the the Hebrew word call. So there's been discussion of whether that refers to spoken words of Yahweh, like the ten words, words that are mediated to Israel through Moses that uh, Moses has received from Yahweh. Other whether there's talking about verbal communication like that, or possibly talking about something more like a decree or a, a, a decision of Yahweh, something that uh, he speaks from his mouth that determines Israel's future, so, or the promise, for example, the, the commitment that we talked about just a moment ago. He's made a commitment to the fathers. He's going to keep that commitment, and Israel lives by that because it came from the mouth of the Lord. That's not words that Israel takes in and remembers and, and keeps in mind, but it's something that's determinative for Israel's life and, and history. And that uh, possibly that that uh, more uh, providential reading of the phrase is supported by what follows: Man does not live by bread alone, but everything that flows from the mouth of Yahweh. And then verse four is immediately: Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell each forty years. Those are things that are produced by the mouth of Yahweh. So, because Yahweh spoke and promised them the land, promised to preserve them, and providentially decreed that He would preserve them. Therefore, they were preserved, their clothing was preserved, and their their feet were preserved as they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. So those two come under the what comes out of the mouth of God. 
I mentioned briefly this description of the land that we that begins in verse seven. Yahweh is bringing you into a good land that ends in verse ten with another reference to the good land that the Lord is giving. Uh, that takes us back again to this creation context. We've mentioned that a number of times in previous episodes that uh, the goodness of the land is a alludes back to the goodness of the original creation. And the land that Israel inherits is, is kind of inherits is a kind of Eden land, but that Eden land is kind of representative of the goodness of, of creation in general. And Israel as the new Adamic people is entering the, the, the good new creation and being given all these blessings. And then in between that, those two references to the good land in general, the word land is used an additional five times between verses seven through 10, which means you've got seven, seven uses of the word land, Eretz. It takes us again numerically into the into the realm of the creation account, and then um, specific descriptions of the water resources in the land and the uh, the the uh, crops that come from the land, wheat and barley, certain kinds of fruit trees, uh, the produce of the land, olive oil and honey. Uh, there's food. There's bread. Verse nine says, and you won't lack anything. And then not only are there things that sustain the raw materials that sustain physical, biological life, all the food that you need and all the water that you need, the water that you need to water the crops, and the water flows down valleys and hills, the water that you need to drink, but also um, various kinds of resources, material, mineral resources, so that Israel can can build a an, an more advanced civilization in the land, uh, building on what's already there. Moses has already reminded the, the people that they're going into a land that's already has cities in it, it's already got infrastructure in it, but in addition to that infrastructure, there's iron and there's copper, and Israel is going to be able to mine those things and use those things to build uh, to build more than just a subsistence kind of uh, agrarian life. They're going to build cities. They're going to build a, a, a civilization in the land. It occurs to me that what, what we have here is a description that kind of combines the uh, descriptions that we have of, of uh, Eden, the Garden of Eden in particular, in Genesis 1, and the downstream land of Havilah, uh, the Garden of Eden has fruit trees, and particularly the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. Uh, there's no references to gold or to gem stones in Eden, but there are uh, the down, downstream, down one of the rivers is the land of Havilah, and in Havilah there is gold. That gold is very good, and there's uh, onyx stone is there. Uh, what you have when what Israel has when they go into the land is kind of an emerging of the resources of Havilah and Eden. It's not just a re- return to that kind of fruit land uh, and 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 uh, wheat land, the grassland of Eden, but it's the food land of Eden plus the mineral land of Havilah uh, that's combined in the land of Canaan. Peter, you mentioned a sevenfold repetition of um, Eretz, um, I think, for the land. And it strikes me that we've got a couple of kind of um, tenfold statements connected to the land, which split into a three and a seven. Um, and so you, you you get this repetition of seven. And so the first is in the previous chapter. So chapter seven, verse um, 13, talking about what God is going to do as they enter the land. Um, he will love you, bless you, multiply you. So you get this kind of threefold uh, statement. And then you get the sevenfold blessing on the land. He will also um, bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, so two fruits, and then your grain, your wine, your oil, your herds, and the young of your flock. So kind of a three and a seven. And then here 
it seems you've got something similar in chapter eight and verses seven um, and eight. So the land, first it's water is described, the land of brooks, um, fountains, springs. Um, and then in the next uh, verse, again, this sort of sevenfold to do with fruitfulness, a land of wheat, barley, vines, fig trees, pomegranates, olive trees, and honey. And, and so that kind of three and seven uh, and that kind of uh, notion of 10 seemed there's somewhere else in Deuteronomy where that occurs now and I can't recall, but that, that seems to be in the structure here. Peter, you compared the um, situation described here to that of Eden, and there's something about the experience of the wilderness that juxtaposes the reality of Eden with the experience of a barren, uncultivated world, because the Lord provides for them in a way that is similar to the provision of fruit from the trees in the garden. Um, they don't have to cultivate. They don't have to prepare. Um, there's this natural bounty that they can enjoy. And there's also a boundary that's protecting them. The Lord has created this boundary while they're going through the great and terrifying wilderness. The serpents, the scorpions and others aren't attacking them. And so when we read of the attack of the fiery serpents in Numbers, it's because the Lord has removed the boundary that protects Israel and has allowed them to face the natural state of this wilderness. And so the Lord is leading them through in a childlike state as Israel goes through the wilderness. They're like Adam and Eve within the garden who are in a childlike state. Their needs provided. They're not having to cultivate for themselves and plant a new garden from scratch. And yet when they move into the land, there's still this context of provision and protection, but they're expected to stand more on their own feet as the Lord empowers them. And so there's a movement into a greater degree of maturity for Israel here that is akin to the growth of a child from that stage of absolute dependence upon their parents to the stage when they're actually doing some things for themselves, having to provide for some of their own needs and to recognize some of the dangers of the world outside and wrestle with those. And so the experience of the wilderness is this growing up experience for the Israel as God's son, which is very much a governing metaphor for the book of Deuteronomy and also within this chapter, particularly in places like verse five. Yeah, that's really helpful. And uh, to, to, just to confirm the point, um, uh, even in the land, they're going in and there's going to be stuff there for them to just pick up. So there's a, still kind of a childlike uh, condition to some degree. But then if you if you go uh, past the middle of the chapter, I, I said verse 11 was the middle, there's a return to a description of the land now as a warning when you eat and are satisfied. But then it goes on to describe what they're going to do when they get into the land. Uh, they're going to build, they're going to build houses and live in them. So there's not just a matter of them moving into the houses and buildings that are already there and the cities that are already there, but they're going to be productive with the resources that they have. Your herds and your flocks multiply. They're not just inheriting herds and flocks, but their uh, animal husbandry, they're going, to, they're going to have more abundant herds and flocks. Your silver and gold are going to multiply. That means that they're going to have to do uh, some of the mining that's necessary to extract the gold and silver. It's not just lying in lying around on the ground, the streets are not paved with gold. They're going to have to, they have to labor to, to find it. All that you have multiplies. So there's this, uh, yeah, there's this entry into maturity once they go into the land and maturity is marked by productivity. 
by fruitfulness, by uh, building and multiplying, especially multiplying. Verse 13 uses that verb three times. Herds and flocks multiply, silver and gold multiply. And in case we miss anything, all that you have multiplies. Again, that's that's the word that takes us back to Genesis, Genesis 1, where in Genesis 1, it seems to be primarily about pro, uh, procreation. You're going to Adam and Eve are going to be fruitful and multiply themselves and have children. But here that multiplication is extended to include the whole world that they're that they're creating in the land. Uh, and it's it's a uh, it's an endorsement of that kind of productivity and that kind of uh, progress, if you will, and that kind of uh, fruitfulness in the land. And I, th- I think that's worth emphasizing. Um, there's a kind of uh, uh, distorted kind of asceticism that has sometimes plagued the church that, uh, you know, that, that uh, receiving the good things of the creation, uh, seeking to be uh, productive and fruitful and uh, to multiply resources and to build resources is somehow uh, a second, second tier form of piety. Uh, but that's, that's what, uh, that's why the Lord created Adam. That's why the Lord created Israel. So they could inherit the land and do exactly that. So they could be fruitful, multiply and productive. And uh, that's Jesus has brought us into that calling with, you know, now we're set out into the whole world. Fruitfulness of course, of course, can take many, many different forms. Uh, and it's, this is not a, this is not a kind of uh, prosperity gospel that I'm suggesting. But if we if we miss this emphasis in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Bible, then we're missing an important dimension of what it means to be a follower of uh, the, of the Creator, a worshiper of the Creator. He intends to share the abundance of His creation with us. Right, and the combination of fruits and foodstuffs um, with alongside the metals here just strikes me as significant in in various ways. I mean, one way, at least I see it, is is as this mix of kind of immediate um, needs and and kind of uh, aids to fruitfulness, and then stuff that's there for more long term aims and long term productivity. I mean, the manna is going to dry out soon, and they're going to need a land of wheat, barley, vines, etc. That's going to be an immediate um, need. Metals and stones, copper, etc. You can do without for a while, um, but they can't do without it forever you know there's going to be apart from anything else a, a temple that needs um building and a, and a palace and all the rest of it and and so it seems that what's provided is is both for their immediate needs and for their kind of longer term ambitions and i wonder if we, we're meant to connect some of that back to um cain and the way in which the line of cain gets access and starts sort of exploiting metals kind of almost too early um, before it's, it's God's time for them to um, have it and to start using it. But now the time has come for the, the line of promise to um, kind of come into the good of of, of that that Cain had initially and, and start um, putting it to use in the promised land. Perhaps one way to think about that is the difference between the idea of maturity as a matter of escaping your parents and their authority. And thinking about maturity more as um, taking on the uh, responsibilities and the authority that your parents have and acting in their name within the world. And so Adam and Eve sought to escape the authority of God and to get maturity as 
something that they were wresting from God. God was the obstacle to their enjoyment of agency and power and authority within the world. And so they stood against him to grasp it. Whereas the Lord's teaching Israel here that they will gain true authority and true agency and power as they submit to him. And as they depend upon him, they will be able to act with these new gifts that they're being given in a way that will be a true source of power. They won't be mastered by these things. They won't fall into the traps of the attitude of self-sufficiency, the attitude of forgetful rejection of the Lord and forgetfulness of the source of their power and their agency. It's the Lord that gives them the power to gain wealth. And that understanding of um, maturity, I think, is very much part and parcel of this. Israel's being brought into the land, not merely as a sort of um, means of their personal enjoyment, that they can enjoy these good gifts, but it's part of their vocation, part of them growing into the mission and the calling for which God has appointed them, which is ultimately the truer human calling, the calling that we might exercise dominion within the world that we might be fruitful and multiply and subdue what God has given us. And Israel's going to learn that as they follow the rule of their father. And that is the source of true freedom and authority, not something that's wrested from God. As I, as I said before, the, the land is, is, is a test just as the wilderness was a test. And that point comes up beginning in verse 14. Actually, it, it starts with the uh, the turning, the kind of crux of the chapter in verse 11, guard yourself lest you forget. Uh, and if you forget, then your heart might become proud. That's verse 14. Uh, and there's a, a similar kind of statement, verse 17. Otherwise, you will say in your heart, my my power and my strength of my hands has given me this wealth. So the temptation of abundance, of satisfaction, of satiation is that you forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You forget the lessons of the wilderness. One of the lessons of the wilderness is dependence, uh, particularly dependence on whatever proceeds out of the mouth of God. Uh, and uh, even in the land, that lesson still holds. It's not like they depend on what proceeds from the mouth of God in the wilderness, but they don't have to once they get into the land. They still need to. Uh, they still are dependent on what comes, what flows from the mouth of God. Uh, they need to remember those lessons of the wilderness when they're in the land so that they don't become proud. Uh Again, the temptation is to become proud to think that the, for Israel to think that they have uh, achieved this by their own power. Verse seventeen, uh, and part of what part of the antidote to that is to remember the wilderness, remember your deprivations of the wilderness, and how the Lord sustained you, how dependent you were in the wilderness. You're still dependent once you get in the land, but it's also to remember that Yahweh is the one who has given Israel whatever ability they have to make the wealth that they're generating. Their uh, flocks and herds are multiplying. They build houses and they live in them. Their silver and gold multiplies. Everything they have multiplies. And in that abundance, they begin to think that they've the one, they're the one that are the source of that multiplication and that fruitfulness, that productivity. And they're not. Human beings do make wealth. We generate new stuff. We bring new things into existence. We take the resources, you know, silver and gold, uh, copper and iron and generate new kinds of implements and vessels and useful things and beautiful things from those materials. But the power to do that, the ability to uh, take those resources and to cultivate them and to shape them uh, into, into useful and beautiful things, 
that power to make artifacts is itself from God. It's not just that the raw materials are from God and that the power to turn those raw materials into wealth is somehow inherent in us. Uh, both the raw materials and the power to, to make things and to make wealth comes from God. And that's the lesson of the wilderness. That's the lesson they have to remember uh, as long as they live in the land, or they're going to they're going to forget the Lord and they're going to violate the first word and they're going to be driven from the land. Yeah. And a lot of that seems to me, at least to be underlined um, verbally, Peter, you, you were talking about the um, kind of what, what seems to be this very definitional statement of what comes forth from the um, mouth of the Lord. It's Kol Mozart fi Adonai, I think. So kind of Mozart is yeah, that it can be a word for a fountain, but that that which um, flows forth, and that that just seems to echo um, throughout this chapter. And so later it was talking about the um, streams which come forth from um, where are we? Uh, verse seven. seven. Yeah, uh, yeah uh, Yotzim there. So same root as Mozart, um, and then later in sort of. Verses 11 onwards, we were then talking about how the Lord, um, uh, he's not the Mozart, the fountain, but the uh, Mozart, um, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then in verse 15, um, who brought water out of the um, rock, again, and so it, it feels like what's being emphasized is, yes, there are different proximate sources um in terms of what um israel is being given but all this is is flowing forth from the same ultimate source um the god who chose them god who brought them out who made them flow forth from uh egypt the one is who is now making things um flow forth from the ground and from the rocks for their benefit and 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 that just seems to underlie this so much yeah that's really helpful uh, those those connections then the flowing out uh, idea is going to be picked up again in chapter nine in ways that I can't remember right at the moment, but I, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that, that's a, an observation that a number of commentators have made when they're looking at eight, three and thinking about what it means for all things to flow from the mouth of Yahweh, looking around at the context and seeing that you have all these other flowing things uh, that are mentioned or the things that are moving up, like Israel is being brought up out of Egypt uh, and water flowing through the land, uh, and and looking at the yeah the, the what's flowing from the from the mouth of Yahweh in the light of those other uses of the verb and similar verbs. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. That um, uh, it's ultimately word. You could say it's the decree of God. It's the it's the word of God. Uh, I mean, if you want to go full Trinitarian, it's ultimately the word, the the eternal word uh, that flows from the mouth of the Father. And is the source of all this abundance. It's the word that's the source of the creation. It's it's that word that's the source of all the all the goods that Israel enjoys in the land, uh, because he is the one that flows from the mouth of God. Yeah, I, I want to go full Trinitarian. I want that on the record. The end of the chapter, I think, also underlines the the choice that they face. The choice throughout Deuteronomy at many points is sharp. It's the choice between life and death, and the choice between that. Um, life and death is seen if they reject the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord their God, they are going to suffer the exact same death that the nations the Lord made to perish before them suffered. And so without 
the voice of God at their heart, if they're not heeding that voice, they become just like the, the dead nations. And that, I think, highlights the way in which the voice of God, which they heed or don't heed, um, is the source of every single part of their life, the source of their prosperity and security within the land. It's the source of the good gifts of creation. It's the source of their place within the land. They are a people of the Lord's creation, and he has given them his word. And that word by which they live is the means by which they will have life. It's the constant refrain within these chapters. The, the source of their life is God's word. The means by which they are protected from the death of the nations is by heeding and obeying it. Right, and that takes us back again to the Adamic context that we've talked about already. Israel's going into the land uh, there to open their ears to the voice of Yahweh, not be listening to other voices. Uh, that language of hearing the voice or listening to the voice it comes up in verse 20. Uh, and if they don't, uh, if they do as Adam did and close their ears to the voice of Yahweh or start listening to the voice of a serpent, then they're going to be cast out of the land and they're going to perish. That uh, threat of the threat of exile is going to be very prominent toward the end of Deuteronomy. It's a climactic curse of Deuteronomy uh, 28. Uh, it's virtually a prophecy in Deuteronomy 30 that Israel will be cast out of the land and they'll have to go among the nations. The Lord's going to preserve them, but still they're going to be driven out uh, as uh, as Adam was. We can bring this also back to the fact that this is part of the first word section of Deuteronomy. Moses brings up the language of the first word here at the end of the chapter. You go after other gods, serve them, and worship them. And they do that by listening to other voices and not listening to the voice of the Lord their God. Then they're an Adamic, they become an Adamic people in the negative sense. They they follow the example of their forefather in closing their ears to Yahweh, listening to other voices, and being driven from this great Eden land that they're given. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.